what basically the thing about it that is quite odd is people quite often come to the show on their own which I've never experienced before mm. and almost every show I've done there'll be one person who's sitting at a table on their own and it's something about the show because it's about being fat and about having a fat body and usually these are fat people that come on their own that people want this show and they want to hear about having a fat body and they want to hear someone else talking about a fat body because one of the things I talk about in the show is the fact that if you're fat you don't really get to talk about it you don't you're not really supposed to even talk about the fact that you yourself are fat the people who want this show but maybe don't want to come with their friends or don't want to even necessarily like talk to people about the fact they want to come and see it but they want to come and see it hello i'm dave i'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together i need to get better please make me better i want to get better 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 acquainted with you Today we're getting better acquainted with Matilda Gregory. Hello Matilda. Hello Dave. So the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? Last year I did a show at the Fringe and I met Rosie Willoughby and I had a chat with her and I said to her, I want to do some really nice gigs in London, who would you recommend? And she recommended your show, Stand Up Tragedy. And I think you were actually up here, but it was really late on in the fringe. It was too late, I think, to get involved with you then, so I think I got in touch when I got back. And it just so happened that my show was about werewolf erotica and you were planning a Halloween show. That's right. So it was just, it just clicked, so that, and that's how we met, I think. We're at the Fringe at the moment. This has been recorded at the Fringe, Fringe 2015. We're both doing shows at the Fringe. We're both doing kind of personal shows, I guess, yeah. about how we're seen by society. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, and when, we, when I booked you to do Stand Up Tragedy, I hadn't seen you fully before. I loved what, the sound of what you did, and I, I didn't know that you were going to actually blow me away quite as much as you did. I think you were one of my favourite acts that we had that year, and uh, you really fitted into, into, the, into the tone of what Stand Up Tragedy does. Like, you can go funny, but you can also go dark and serious and, 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 and thought-provoking. And so it was, it was great to have you on, on the show. And then we sort of had you back again to host um, a whole act of, of stand-up tragedy because this year um, I've been having guest hosts a lot more because I, I get fed up of seeing people like me uh, on stage and so I like to have people who aren't like me up on stage more and so one way to do that is to have guest hosts and they bring a completely different flavour to the show and you, you sort of approached me about doing an hour of tragic bodies and that that title it made me sort of like oh okay like initially I was like thinking you could make something really body negative called tragic bodies and I like tragedy but I don't like being negative about people you know that that title makes it sort of sound like oh god this could be like it could be like a, a channel 4 documentary couldn't it like let's laugh at, at, at freaks but because I knew what you did and what you sort of were working on. I thought, no, this is going to be a safe pair of hands. We're going to get a body positive, human positive hour of, of different performers. And you blew me out of the park. It was absolutely what I'd hoped for, which was looking at the sad and tragic things about, about our bodies, but not saying, but uh, bodies are disgusting and we're all, we all should be ashamed of them. It was a perfect kind of tone you set, I thought. Yeah, because I know you were looking for different hosts and it was around the time I was writing the show, the show that I'm up here with, How To Be Fat, which is about having a fat body. And um, I really, you know, I wanted an opportunity to just like start messing around with some material. I'd done a little bit at, at stand-up nights, but it's not a fully stand-up comedy show. It's not funny no, with jokes no, all the way not. through. So there aren't that many places you could, you could try that stuff out. And so it seemed like 
a great opportunity. <laughs> so I got in touch with you and said, oh, could I do a thing about tragic bodies at Stand Up Tragedy? So I did some stuff about my body, about being pregnant and giving birth as well. Yeah, that stuff was really amazing. I yeah. thought the pregnancy stuff, that's another thing that people don't talk about at all. Yeah, no, I thought that was a good... Because my experience of like um, pregnancy and giving birth is that it was really positive and actually quite enjoyable. And obviously, like, every kind of every time it's discussed in the media tour it's like this terrible thing and I'm sure people have like a wide range of experiences when you give birth to a child but mine happened to be like just really fine like it was completely fine right. <laughs> and I wanted to kind of like tell that story of like a birth just, just just going fine and just being quite enjoyable and not being particularly painful and it was just like a nice a really nice kind of joyful thing so I did that and then also some stuff about my body and having a fat body and then we had a couple of other guests as well talking about other aspects of bodies but I thought it kind of fits in with stand-up tragedy because there are lots of kind of pressures from society about one of the things I say in my show is there are so many ways to have a body wrong so it was kind of about that it's kind of about the social pressures that everyone feels about their body because every like there, I don't yeah. think there's anyone walking around with a body who doesn't feel there's something with their body that's wrong Absolutely. in the eyes of society and so it's about it's about people feeling ashamed of their bodies but not of course not saying that they should feel ashamed of their bodies and that's the, so the tragedy is that they feel ashamed and it's more tragic because they shouldn't going forwards with stand-up tragedy that seems to be a theme that comes up more and more like that that's the way that society looks at people is the tragedy not mm. the things that we are yeah. um, and that's been a, a theme that's really been running through the show as we've gone on like you say you're making a show called how to be fat and that was some of the stuff that some of the stuff from, that you did with us yeah. kind of ended up in the show but not very much of it and that's what the process is about really of, of showing stuff early and working with audiences uh, and now you're doing that show in Edinburgh yeah. so we're nearly at the end of the run now so I've probably done it what 20 20 odd times now um, and I've got five more I think yeah it's 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 going really well it's quite an interesting show in that there's an audience for it but what basically the thing about it that is quite odd is people quite often come to the show on their own which I've never experienced before. Mm. And uh, so almost every show I've done, there's been at least one person, because I'm in a cabaret-style venue as well, so there's tables, so you can tell if people are on their own, they're not sitting in rows. There'll be one person who's sitting at a table on their own. And I've had one night where every single person, it's quite a small audience, I think about six, seven people, and every single person was on their own, which is really unusual. And it's something about the show, because it's about being fat and about having a fat body, and usually these are fat people that come on their own that people want this show and they want to hear about having a fat body and they want to hear someone else talking about a fat body because one of the things I talk about in the show is the fact that if you're fat you don't really get to talk about it you don't you're not really supposed to even talk about the fact that you yourself are fat um, mm. in kind of in kind of mixed company maybe with other fat people you can but even that can be quite tricky that's one of the things about the show that I never expected that has really struck me is the people who want this show but maybe don't want to come with their friends or don't want to even necessarily like talk to people about the fact they want to come and see it but they want to come and see it makes it really an interesting show to perform and you see these people and you know the, the lighting in my room is I can just about see people and some people are just nodding the whole way through the show and people after the show I always kind of talk to people as they're leaving and ask them about the show and uh, people are often just just like so like so grateful like thank you so much thank you so much for doing the show which makes me feel really humble because like it's it, it doesn't feel to me now because of having done it so many times like it's such a big deal to say these things about my right. body but to the people hearing it for the first time it seems that it really is yeah i mean that's really really interesting to me as well because i mean we previewed our our solo shows together mm. and one of the things when i was watching that i i, I definitely felt like it was interesting to me because I, I guess i'm not someone who you could describe as having a fat body but i i definitely have lots of shame about my body and my my appearance and like feel ugly and all of that stuff and so it was 
interesting to me that it was so resonant with me, even though it was about a very different position within within society, a very different place that you looked at. But also, I mean, my show that I'm doing is about how people experience being a man and how 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 society hurts men and how men hurt people as a result of society. But it. I mean, I'm having similar responses from my audiences that I'm not used to having, which is, yeah, lots of nodding, lots of, like, people definitely... Like, when people cry in my show, they're not crying, I've realised, because of what I'm saying. They're crying because they're remembering their own childhood experiences or their teenage experiences and and they're crying for themselves which is a big responsibility to have I feel like like bringing that stuff up for people but I mean it's it is a, a strange process of like yeah people coming up to you afterwards and thanking you and I've had people like men coming on their own like you say and people coming up to me afterwards and saying I have no one to talk to about this there's no and I need I, you know and it's almost like it's a beacon to people and it sounds like it's, that's what's happening for you yeah uh, yeah yeah that sounds really similar yeah very much same thing I mean people do also people cry in my show and the part where people cry is when I'm talking about my own body and my feeling shame about my own body but I know they're not crying because I'm they're not crying because they feel so sad that I feel ashamed they're crying because I'm talking about feeling ashamed of your body and like you say you don't have to be fat to feel ashamed of your body because there are so many ways that people can feel ashamed so many different things about your body that you can feel ashamed about and I mean one of the things that I talk about quite briefly in the show because obviously I can really only talk about the experience of like being a fat woman and having a fat woman's body is I talk about the kind of real women stuff the kind of awesome curves stuff and when I talk about that I always feel like I have to mention there's, there's no message like this aimed at men at all so even though if you're a woman you do get this kind of like oh but you're still beautiful even though you're big kind of thing that is slightly kind of awkward and not necessarily positive but I've never heard any message in the media to direct at fat men at all that they should feel in any way good and I think that that's something something else that just isn't just isn't discussed and I think that if you're a man you're supposed to you know you're not supposed to even think about your body right (laughs) you're not supposed to even really acknowledge that you have one right and um so there's just there's just there's just so little about men, and and fat men have come to my show, and I think I think there's still there's still a lot a lot in it a lot in it for them, and I think it's because of what you said, because the show is about feeling ashamed, I think that sadly that's something that so many people can identify with. I've had all kinds of people come up to me off the show and talk about how it's affected them. Very very thin women have talked to me about how you know they feel like their bodies are not right because they're not like women's bodies and they're not right. they're not the shape a woman's body is supposed to be and they feel their bodies are too masculine. I've had like like slim young men have said to me that they feel you know again they feel that they're not masculine because their bodies are wrong I had one guy talk to me and say the fact that he feels ashamed of the fact that he's a smoker and the fact that he can't give up smoking and he knows it's damaging his body and he feels that people judge him for it right and it it never occurred to me that that would be something that people would would feel but I I, I think everyone everyone has their thing that they're ashamed of and if you talk about shame in the show then um, people respond to it and 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 I think that's I think that's what the show's really about the show's not really about being fat the show's really about feeling ashamed yeah i mean and that that yeah that that again that resonates quite a lot with my my show and that one of the things i think i'm mostly kind of tackling is shame and and uh, and that kind of sense of the, the the sense that 
who you are is irrelevant because you have to be this thing that society says you're supposed to be. And I guess if you're a fat woman particularly, but, but also fat, a fat man, it's a similar thing in that society says we're supposed to be a slim person, right? And, and, and also, like, one of the things that I like about your show is it exa- examines the myths around being fat. The idea that pe- fat people, for example, don't, you know, aren't aware that they're fat, like, they know they're fat, and, like, this idea that fat people are lazy and all of these things, which are, are, are bullshit. I know they're bullshit, but, you know, you... you you really take it on in a really good way and like make it very clear, which is needs to be done. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the sort of structure of the show is kind of I talk about how difficult it is to talk about being fat, and then I talk about some of the kind of conversations that you have, the kind of conversations you have when people who aren't fat will talk to you about how fat they are, and then I talk about different things you can do about being fat. And one of the things I do is I, is dieting, so I talk quite a lot about dieting. Right. I went on some different diets in order to like put them in the show. Yeah. So I talk about that. I talk about the experience of dieting, how that made me feel. And then I talk about fat acceptance and trying to feel okay about your body and how that also is a difficult, complicated thing. The show sort of covers, I, tr- I try to kind of cover like lots of different aspects of the experience of having a fat body, although obviously there's, there's, there's a lot more that could be said about it. But to look at those things like people thinking that, I think one that, that it's lazy, also that, that it's something that you're in control of. That I think that's the biggest, the most difficult thing about being fat is the idea that people think that you could not be fat if you wanted to right so that's kind of a lot of the key of the show is 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 trying the things that you're supposed to do in order to not be fat and seeing how that how that goes for me and then sort of talking about towards the end of the show I do this thing where I talk about my sister who's thin and I look at what she eats and I try and eat the same things that she eats in order to be thin like her because she has the same body type as me and she she's very careful about what she eats in order to be thin and so we did an experiment basically where she text messaged me every time she ate something and I tried to eat the same thing as her we managed it for about four days that's as long as we could do it for so in the show we kind of look at that as a way of looking at the idea that there's a choice to it there's a free choice to it maybe there's a free choice to it for some people right I mean that's a startling section I think of the show because it says a lot about both structural positions Mm. like seeing what your sister eats and how little or she eats some days and when you think about like most people's energy levels they need more than that like it's a it's a it's a it's a stark contrast on both sides it's like in fact not even on both sides because you eat that's another thing that I think is very interesting about the show is you eat what everyone eats right because that's what fat people eat you don't have a different diet from me there's no reason why we I should think of you as someone who is a gluttonous or whatever but that's the sort of thing that, that people think about fat people yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's the, the most sort of striking thing that I think people think about fat people. And I, I talk about that quite a lot in the show. There's a, there's a kind of, I've got a film of all the food that I ate yeah. over four months. And I did an Instagram of everything that I ate and made it public. So there's there's that aspect to it. And then obviously the section where I'm trying to eat what my sister eats, you can always see what I actually eat at that time. But I also talk about the show, the fact that, you know, I do feel like I do overeat at times. And I do feel like that there are, I eat a lot sometimes and it's hard to know if it's too it's hard to know if it's too much it's hard to know yeah it's hard to really control everything that you eat because it's something that is happening so often almost like there's lots of different messages in the show Um, and there's messages about feeling okay about your body there's messages about feeling really not okay about your body there's messages about feeling like well i just eat the same thing as everything else there's a message about saying i think i eat more than everyone else i think those things are real because i think that that is the experience of having a fat body is to have all these different messages all the time right you'll probably be experiencing this i certainly am I know everybody pretty much experiences it at the fringe whatever they're doing whether they're doing shows that are trying to get into really dark areas like us or whether they're just a 
standard comedian doing general jokes is people probably describe what you what you do as brave right mm. um, and I get that a lot and it's kind of a cliche it's kind of weird when you're a performer because you're like it's not brave it's just what I do but I think that with a show like yours and maybe even like a show like mine which feels weird to say about it but I think it is brave to stand up and, and say things that that you are ashamed of, right? Mm. But but what's interesting to me about your show as well is that your sister, like, she's being brave by letting you share her her statistics. Yeah, uh, my sister's re- my sister's really brave because she's not a performer, right? And she's let me do this in the show, and she's seen the show about three times, and she really she really likes it. She's completely supportive of it and really really proud of it. But she yeah she let me do that. So she first of all she cooperated with the thing by text messaging me every time she ate something and letting me try and eat what she eat. She let me use that in the shows, you know. So I have a I have like a screen and a slide and that, that you can see exactly what she's eaten over four over four days and she does it she does eat very little on some days because she's she's very very vigilant about what, how much her calorie intake all the time and uh, I think for her it's almost more brave because I know that she doesn't like people seeing her eat for example right but she's let me do that I think I think I think that's incredibly brave and yeah she's not she's not a performer in fact when we did the preview in in, in Brixton when you and I did she came to see that show did, yeah. and at the end of the show I got her to stand up and I got the audience to give her a round of applause and afterwards she said that she'd never had a round of applause before <laughs> since she was like a child in a school play wow. and I thought that was amazing because I think as performers you get used to people giving you a round of applause so maybe she thinks it was worth it for that I don't know yeah I mean and I think her kind of story being a counter narrative to yours is quite an important one in the show because it sort of shows how women in the, in the case of both of you but probably extends to a lesser degree with men but everyone has stigma around how they eat and everyone has like shame around how they eat like no matter how they kind of look I mean not everyone that's a, a big statement but I think it's really important to have that counter narrative uh, particularly because quite fairly and reasonably within the show you sort of like get annoyed about thin people which is I'm you know I, I, I recognize must be annoying but of course you know thin, thin people themselves are probably having the similar struggles to what you then demonstrate with your sister so I think if, it, if that wasn't there the show would be less strong you know and I'm really uh, I think it's a really great element yeah I think it's quite important to have that bit in the show I mean, there is like a section right at the top of the show where I talk about thin people saying their fat is and I get quite angry about some of the things that they say because you know I feel that they're shaming me by talking about their own fatness and then I and then I sort of almost break out of the show and I say you know the show's not about being mean to thin people because you don't know you, know, you don't just because someone's thin doesn't mean they don't have an issue with food or that Absolutely, they haven't yeah. been fat in the past or that they don't just feel like a constant pressure to not become a fat person so I think that it's it's quite important that the show is kind of that like any kind of body I mean I've had I've had people who are thin who have said to me oh I'd like to come and see your show but I'm worried that you're mean about thin people in the show and I always say to them well not really you know, not really. There's there's one section that talks about thin people, but I think that broadly, I mean, there's a tagline of the show, which is a show for everybody. And yeah. I think that that's quite important to me because I think everyone just feels those kind of pressures. Everyone feels odd about food and what they eat and kind of monitors what they eat. And did I eat the right thing? Did I eat the wrong thing? I think that you don't have to be fat to feel those pressures or to feel that way. Well, I think it's a really important show for thin people in inverted commas, whatever that means. I, I always feel, I feel very uncomfortable using the word thin or fat, uh, mm. just to, to make that clear. I, I knew coming into this, 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 this uh, conversation, I just have to bite the bullet and say, the word um, because I can't just like be so ridiculous about it when I'm talking to someone who's being so open about that yeah I think it's an important show for thin people to see because it's about privilege right in the thin people 
can feel insecure about these things, but they don't necessarily understand how their insecurity can really hurt other people. And I think that's the case with privilege generally. Like when people are moaning about their uh, lack of funds, when they actually have quite a lot of funds and you're actually actual poor person, that makes you feel worse about yourself. But it doesn't mean that the people moaning about their, their, their money troubles who have a little bit more money than you are wrong to be worried about their money problems. It's just knowing who your company is and being aware of other people's feelings and how they they feel about their place in society i, I guess yeah oh yeah that's true i mean i think people definitely have a definitely have a, a privilege of basically you know not having to it's that it probably is always about like not having to face things i'm to think about things if you're fat you always have this constant right. feeling that people are making assumptions about you because of the size and shape of your body and if you're thin that's that doesn't happen so much apart from you know if you, if you were very extremely thin I think you might feel, still feel that same pressure but generally speaking if you have the kind of socially accepted body shape and size you don't have to think about the fact that people are looking at you and assuming things about you and the way that you live and the things that you choose to do and possibly thinking that you're in some way some kind of burden on society right. which is the kind of message that fat people get now that somehow they're doing terrible things to the, to the world around them right. by being fat and having right. that shaped body. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing about, you know, about privilege. I sort of got some lines about that in my show. Like, you know, you just don't know you have it when you've got it. And so that's why I think people should see your show. Like, of all, all bodies should see it, because people don't know. It's not like half the hate we have to deal with is hate, and half the hate we have to deal with is ignorance, I think. Like, generally speaking, whatever the, whatever the way you're getting hated is, you know. Or, like, I, I don't know. That's a, a, a big statement again. I'm always a bit shy away from when I've made a big statement and go, ah, it's all going to be wrong. How can I quantify it? <laughs> half and half? What is that? It's absurd. It's, yeah. it's numbers. It doesn't really mean anything. I'm just plucking them out of the air. But I don't know. Something feels right about that to me. Yeah. So, yeah, the second question that I ask everybody is, what do you do now? Um, what do you mean after the fringe? Well, I mean, what do you do now has a different connotation, I guess, it, it, where it's come into this conversation. But generally speaking, it's kind of like that awkward conversation right. at parties. It's quite interesting uh, to see how people define themselves. Mm. Sometimes people get angry with the question. It's an interesting um, question. What do you now? <laughs> um, so I sort of... I usually describe myself as a writer and performer. I mean, I also have a lot of writing projects. I'm a journalist as well. I, I write for different kinds of publications. I also write scripts, and I've got I'm writing various script projects at the moment. So I've got those things, but also I do really enjoy performing. So I've got a comedy night that I run in, in Brighton, and I also want to do more stuff with this show, with How To Be Fat. So we're looking now at kind of like running it for a few nights back in Brighton and in London as well, and then hopefully looking to uh, put the reviews together, put everything together from Edinburgh and afterwards and approaching other venues around the country to take it there because I think it's a show that a lot of people would like to see and would benefit from seeing So as, and then as well as that looking at a new show for next year, for, for bringing here next year and then I have a few other smaller projects, I run a project called Slash Night which is like a, a live literature night about fan fiction and we're doing one of those on the 17th of September so as soon as I get back from Edinburgh that'll be like the next thing to start focusing on. I guess that's that's enough. When did you become like interested in writing and when did you become interested in performing? I guess they're probably separate um, moments. I, I wanted to write when I was young but I didn't really think it was possible. Like it seemed like an, like an impossible thing to try and do and so I didn't really ever pursue it. I mean I just like, as a teenager I, I wrote some like things but I don't know I always describe it as terrible but yeah, maybe they weren't it? I don't know. I it was about 25, 26, and I wanted to do stand-up. Like I really liked stand-up, stand-up comedy, as a as sort of as a young guy. I used to listen to it on the radio all the time, and I really wanted to do it. And I didn't know whether I could do it, 
or it would be awful. And I bumped into someone who said, oh, we're doing a competition. I live in Brighton. We bumped into someone who said, we're doing a competition. We're looking for people to enter it, stand-up comedians. Why don't you enter it? So I just said yes and um, and did. And I there was the, the heat and I came second in the heat. And it was the first thing I'd ever done. Right. Um, <laughs> the first time I'd ever done it. And yeah, so I was, yeah, I was 20, 25. And, um, if you have a good gig, uh, that kind of curses yeah. you, I think. The first one goes well. The first one went well. Yeah. And there was someone else there who was in the competition who said, I run a night in a pub. Why don't you come and do some comedy at that night? So I went to that and that was just a disaster. Yeah. Like it was just completely, <laughs> like it wasn't even like really a gig. I think he just yeah. had some friends in a pub <laughs> who were shouting. And I didn't really understand. I was quite... I was quite young, although I don't think he was any older than me. And so I didn't, I stopped for, I stopped for a little while and then I managed to kind of meet other people in Brighton who were doing like regular nights that were really good. Um, I did a night at Comedia called Comedy Dairy for a long time and really learned there because it was every month and we were doing, you know, we were doing new material every single month and just kind of learned to do it, learned to write fast. And it was a big room and just learned to hold a big room and just the things that you learn from from doing it a lot and I started doing more stand-up up in London and I started to earn a bit of money from it and I was quite enjo- I was quite enjoying it but I still I mean I still had a full-time job and then I sort of got to a point where I wanted to have kids and I sort of couldn't figure out how to make it all work together and I sort of ended up sort of like just dropping doing stand-up comedy which I sort of always kind of like regretted a bit that I kind of dropped it sort of I sort of did it for like two or three years and then stopped and then I sort of became a writer and sort of started doing journalism that's when I wrote the werewolf erotica so I was writing you know, anything because I had small children so any kind of writing job I could get I was taking that that sort of went on for quite a while and then I um I won a BBC script writing competition for writing comedy and sort of then sort of from that lots more kind of comedy writing opportunities started to come along right kind of script writing and then I'd also one of the things I've been doing is I've been doing reviewing so I've been reviewing I've been coming up to the fringe and as a reviewer I just started to get the feeling that I would like to do a show that I would like to do a, sh- a show at the fringe so because of this um, I had this really weird kind of court case around the werewolf erotica that I had written that had come up and it seemed like a good story to make a fringe show and because so because I wanted to make that into a fringe show I thought well I'm gonna have to like do some performing before I do this my friend Jo Neary who's she's, she's got a show up here yeah, and, yeah. and I'd known her Right back, right back when I started, we've both been together, like doing this show, comedy dairy and comedian. Right. We've known each other, so we've known we've known each other for uh, 15 years, maybe now. And she had a little night in Brighton, and she had occasionally, sort of through the years, been said to me, "Come back, come back and do stand up. Come back and do some stand up." And I'd always said, "No, I can't. I've lost my stage name. I can't do it anymore." So I just got in touch with her and I said, "Oh, all right, I'll come and do, I'll come and do your night." She'd already asked me to do it, and I had said no, so I said, "Yes, I will." And I did it again, and I was so nervous. Like I was so nervous that I couldn't learn the material that I'd written. I wrote some material, and I couldn't learn it because I feel sick every time I looked at it. And I got into touch with Joe, and I said, "I'm going to have to read it. I can't even learn it." And she was like, "It's fine. It's fine. It's a really casual night." And I did it, and it just went brilliant. It went brilliant. Like I was just like, and it was just back like that. Um, and that was it. Yeah. So I didn't know. I didn't know that you could stop for. I think I probably stopped for 12 years. I didn't know that you could stop for that long and not have to go through that process. You know that process at the beginning where you're just learning to like not be terrified on stage. Right. Um, yeah. you know, and that can take a year. It's a long time to learn to just not be like so frightened you, you ruin your own act. Right. And um, I didn't know that if you could stop for that long and it would come back so quickly. But I was like within, I don't know, two or three gigs, I got to the point where not that I'm not nervous. Of course, I'm nervous like anyone else, but not so nervous that it was almost impossible to kind of function for the entire day, which right. is, you know, that, 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 that stage of learning to be a performer, which is not nice. Right. The, the werewolf erotica that you wrote, mm. I mean, so it, that's interesting. So it was kind of partly, mostly, it sounds like, for the money, right? Like you needed the well, cash. Kind of a bit. I mean, it was a bit of both. I mean, I always, I quite 
liked the idea of it because it was for black ladies who were doing this kind of like right. uh, for women by women thing, which I always thought was quite nice and quite supportive. And also because I'm quite involved in kind of fan fiction and fan culture, yeah, where a lot right. of people write erotica about characters that, from from TV shows and films. And I was sort of like always quite kind of supportive of that and quite interested in those kind of cultures. So when I started writing for black ladies, I just I mean I wrote three like contemporary novels for them. And one of them won an award, like the last, the one which is called, amusingly called Equal Opportunities, <laughs> which is not my idea. And, um, and it was about a relationship between a woman and a guy in a wheelchair. I mean, it bombed as a, as a book, like no one wanted to read this book. But uh, some kind of like community activists and kind of like, um, kind of like sex positives and sex disability activists really, really liked it. Right. Um, and so it ended up winning an award at the Erotic Awards in 2007, which is a giant gold penis which I, have, I still have in my house. Um, and uh, so the first show, the World of Roger Cause She Wrote show, was kind of the telling the whole story of that. So up to the point I win the gold penis and then the publishers ask me to write some more books and I write these books about, about werewolf erotica because I really have like written three novels of contemporary erotica about women kind of finding themselves and whatever. And I couldn't, didn't, couldn't want to do another. I didn't want to do another one. I mean, some people are more talented than me and they write, you know, 20, 30 novels of contemporary erotica, but I only had three. And then so I wrote the three novels of werewolf erotica and so what the show that 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 show is really about is the fact that just two years ago there was a court case around a prisoner in california who wanted those particular books the books i'd written in prison and the prison had told him he couldn't have them and so he took the prison to court and sued them and won the right to have my books in in prison and it was a kind of like minor quirky news story like you know prisoners are now allowed werewolf erotica but it was completely bizarre for me because it was the books that I'd written. Like, I didn't know the court case was going on. They hadn't got in touch with me or anything. And it was also kind of weird because they're, they're very clearly books for women. Like, they're very clearly marketed at women. They're kind of like shirtless men on the cover and the covers are sort of purple. But this guy who was in prison, who was in prison for attempted murder, just really wanted to read these books for some reason. Well, I mean, I think that probably speaks to, to a certain extent, how the way that we see how men and women are erotically uh, is kind of like false. I mean, a little bit like how we're only presented one version of our bodies. We're also only presented one version or two versions of sexuality, the only ways you can be. And so I'm, I'm sure lots of people are reading, uh, men are reading Black, Black Lace. I've read Black Lace, but only as research for, for a thing I was working on. But I've read quite a lot of uh, romance and uh, erotica think, for that. Yeah, I think you're quite right. right. Some of it was... Some of it was all right. Some of it did the job. Not much, but, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I was talking to, um, you know, Cameron Moore. And obviously yes, you know yeah, her yeah, well. yeah. I think I might have met her through you, actually. And um, she has this show, um, Phone Hall, about being a phone sex operator. And she was talking about, like, kind of, like, male and female sexuality and, like, and the kind of, obviously, that in her show, there's quite extreme kind of, like, sexual fantasy, male sexual fantasy in her show. And she was saying, you know, I wonder whether it's equivalent for women. And I said, you should come to Slash Night and see what women write when there are no men around. Right. about About men with men. Because because, yeah, it, it, go, it goes to some incredibly dark places, and that's what I think is really interesting about slash fan fiction. There's, there's slash fan fiction that is romantic and fluffy and lovely and just about, you know, boys kissing. And there is stuff that is, like, the, as, as bad as you could possibly imagine it could ever be. <laughs> yeah. And I think you're right. I think there's, there isn't the, these, these kind of these kind of lines between those things are completely fake, and there are, there are, there are probably men who would love the kind of things that are expressed in 
erotic romance novels and I think there are women who love the kind of things that are expressed in like hardcore porn right I mean it's, it's down to that tired argument isn't it like that it's not I mean it, which has been proved not to be the case so mm. people should stop repeating it of like men are supposed to be visual right and women are supposed to be verbal or whatever it is so women are supposed to like erotica written down and men are supposed to just like visual porn but that does not tie in with the people I know like that's not how I feel I like like most women I know are visual it's yeah. kind of handy to be visual it's like the, the main thing that we've got I think I think it would make no sense like 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 I mean no one wants to like reduce anything down to like an evolutionary right. perspective but right. why would women need stuff to be written down like, right whatever. what did they do before yeah, words like, like, <laughs> like, written you know, down, like yeah. mass being able to read is only like a hundred years old like what happened before that like right. what did women do in the 18th century I mean it just yeah. doesn't make any sense at all that women somehow need like sexual things to be written down in order to somehow understand them it just yeah. doesn't make any sense I mean and that's and I guess so you, a lot of the things you're doing have, have been around sexuality like that's one yeah. of the things that you see and sort of like now you've sort of you're going from sexuality towards like more identity and like uh, you know more slightly, slightly more but then sexuality has plenty of darkness within yes. it but but yeah I um, mean yeah, I mean, I think I just do the things that are interesting that came to me. Up, yeah. What do I like? I, what do I like to make stuff about? Bodies is obviously a big thing at the moment. Like sex and sexuality, I think it's really interesting. Kind of like men and women and feminism, I find really interesting. Kind of like popular culture and how that represents us and what that says to us. I think it's really, it's really interesting. So I just, I do feel that I just kind of, I don't know. I mean, because I'm like a journalist as well, and obviously if you're a journalist, one of the things you're supposed to have is like a specialism, right. like a specialist subject that you're good at writing about. And I look at like my kind of like articles. I think well, they're, they're sort of, the specialism seems to be like things I like <laughs> it's just sort of not the kind of I don't know you can really pitch that but recently I wrote something about kids doing PE in, in fat kids doing PE in schools right. so I sort of think well I kind of have a turn of specialism of like you know sad things about being fat is what is one thing I write stuff about kind of like Doctor Who and kind of like quite kind of like fan culture stuff as well and when did you get into that like into slash and fan culture oh god that that's been going on for a long time. I don't know, I say all my life, that's probably not quite true. I mean, I think I, I, I grew up with it, really. I was just like one of those, one of those kids that just loved that kind of stuff. I, I wasn't quite into the pre-internet stuff. I have friends who were involved in the pre-internet fandom where it was, it was zines and it was like photocopied stuff and it was kind of like women retyping entire novels because the photocopies had got so bad. Wow. And that story is amazing. And my friend Fiona talked about it at one of our slash night events and normally at slash night it's like let people, I let people do 10 minutes and she got in touch with me and she said I've, I've written it and it's half an hour and I said I really don't care because it's so interesting and it was it was gripping for right, half an hour because right. it was just this story of like these women like trying to like keep this stuff alive which was basically slash fan fiction written about the professionals like it's kind of it's kind of seems like well why would that be important but it was so important and they would be you know kind of like cycling around London cycling to each other's houses with like patios full of this stuff and like swapping it around and making this stuff and writing entire novels like novel length works and it's incredibly good as well like the quality of the writing is superb I just think that's really gripping but for me I mean I you know when as soon as I got the internet I, I found this stuff really really quickly I've been involved with it for Oh, years. I mean, I mean, obviously, this is a weird thing that happens now because most kind of fandom and fan culture is now on Tumblr, which is like notoriously a website for teenagers. Right. You kind of have this thing where there's such a wide age range of, of, of women. So there's people in their early 20s and people my age, I'm 42. And you kind of, there's, there's no kind of barrier to, to age because everyone's kind of doing the same kind of stuff. One of my best online friends is, is, is 24 and you, d you just don't notice it right. at all. 
and also because I think young women are so sophisticated now. So um, when I talk to these women in their early twenties, and they're ha they're so they're so kind of like turned on, so kind of especially kind of like socially aware and aware of themselves, and they're not. I think young women when I was in my early twenties were much more kind of scared of upsetting people, and and kind of like much more had this message drummed into you that you had to be good and that you had to kind of behave and not really be too loud or anything. And young women now, or at least some of the ones that I encounter on Tumblr, which is probably like a subsection of young women, yeah. so switched on and so aware and so sophisticated that you don't notice that yeah. they're a different age. Well, that makes sense. I and mean, I think the internet has, has given people access to, to ideas and ways of thinking that they hadn't didn't have before. And you can find people as well. It helps to, to, to find other people who share your interests and it gives that kind of confidence yeah. and that ability to push back against those societal pressures. Although I think it's, again, it's like, as you said, pockets. It's like, you know, it's, it's always easy to, when you meet how like young, amazing people to, to forget about all of the, the people who are like, because I think young people have a really, really Really hard time or a really tough time now as well as yeah. as well as those amazing examples yeah it's, it's annoying how great young people seem to be like it's very frustrating I'm like I don't remember being as brilliant as that mm. when I was their age so mm. it is frustrating although I don't know uh, I'm only I mean th I'm, I'm only 33 whatever that means Jesus age uh, so I, d I haven't done as good as he did I mean I've, I'm happy to be old like mm. I, that's the, the, my feelings about um, when I turned 30 I had a the only party like that I had in years I hate birthdays but I had like a massive party when I was yeah. 30 because I was like I'm saying goodbye to my 20s and my teens which were the worst they were the worst well <laughs> I mean despite you know the kind of social pressures that you feel around aging all the statistics suggest that people get happier as they get older and continue right. to get happier and the happiest people so long as you, I mean obviously there are things that can make you very unhappy like, like, like poverty extreme money worries and things like that but so long as you're like if you're reasonably comfortable and if you're kind of like you know and nothing terrible happens like a massive divorce or some so, or some tragedy then you, get, you tend to get happier and happier as you get older yeah. and the one the one blip is around the age of uh, sort of mid 40s where people tend to have teenage children right. and that is really the only thing that stops this from just you just get happier and happier now that makes sense I mean my dad was 58 when I was mm. born so he's like 92 now so I have kind of a, 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 I like uh, a, like I've never had a thing about age particularly uh, because I've always known a, 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 a young in his mind like vigorous person it's never really been a thing although it does become a thing obviously as people get older mm. like to the age that he is now it's yeah you know, yeah I mean obviously illness that's, things that's like that where too. that's where biology kicks in and you can't yeah. like be as but definitely like I think I mean, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's hard being young. It's just hard not knowing the stuff. And then you know the stuff a bit better or you know yourself a bit better. And then things get easier, I think. Yeah. I, mean, that I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, like, anything that you do, like, the longer you do it for, the better you get at it. Right. And that probably includes being you. Like, right. <laughs> like, the, like, when you're kind of young, you're kind of, like, not as good at being you as you probably are when you're middle-aged being you. Because you just, you just have more practice at it. So if you think of it as something like doing any kind of job or, like, I don't know, playing the piano or something, like, obviously you get better and better at it as you get older. Yeah. It would be odd if you didn't. Absolutely. I mean, I should say as well, the background sound to explain what they are, some of them, there's a game of pool happening behind us. We're in quite a quiet bar that I didn't even know about till, till this and this is going like oh I'm now I know about this I'm going to be oh, going to be coming back to the air I'm not even going to give out where it is because I can imagine that will that will help it to continue to be quiet but um but yeah um so that's 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 why there are occasional sounds in the background listeners that's the room we're in today if you were into those kinds of fiction then you probably were what they call a geek or a nerd or whatever you want to call it like or were you were quite like a silent a shy geek or a nerd growing up um I don't know. I, I never really remember ever like 
identifying as that ever. No, no, um, I don't think I ever identified it. And I, I don't know if that wasn't a phrase that was around, but I don't, I don't ever remember it. And I never, I never felt like what I liked sort of culturally was like at all odd or sort of, I don't know, second best or anything like that. I mean, it just wasn't, it was just, that was just the stuff that I liked. So I liked kind of like, I liked science fiction type stuff and I don't know, kind of like fantasy type stuff when right. I was younger and still, and still do now. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't think, like, I don't think of myself as like, because I don't read, I don't read comics, for example. So I think, well, I don't read comics. I don't really, I'm not really, you know, a proper one. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I just suppose I think, I mean, I suppose I also like, so I also really like like detective novels and right. kind of murder mysteries, which I don't think falls under the same camp. So maybe I sort of feel like, well, I sometimes read detective novels, so I'm not really, a, not really like a proper, like, but it's not like a feeling like, a, like I'm above those people. It's more like I'm not really in that gang. I'm not really like, I'm not really, I don't really qualify for that. Right. I mean, it's a, it definitely is a stranger. I don't think I ever identified with those terms. I certainly heard them growing up used about me, um, but I, I didn't, I didn't I ever think of myself as though it's a geek or, or a nerd or whatever. But definitely, I think there are connections between fantasy and science fiction and uh, detective fiction. Like, yeah. I actually think they are very, they are actually very similar. They often are about like, you know, complicated plots with like a, a, a puzzle within it that yeah. kind of gets solved. I don't know. I mean, I like, I like detective fiction. Uh, as well as uh, fantasy and science fiction, so I, I can yeah. I think they are sort of in the same wheelhouse. But then that's just because they're in my wheelhouse, and that I I am the factor that links them up. So there maybe there isn't. Really. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> um, I I don't, I don't I don't know. I mean it's I mean I didn't really. I mean I suppose I was saying what I was like as a child. I just felt like I was just like a kind of like odd kind of misfit. Like I didn't think I was like part of any kind of social group. Like even right. at my school, there was like a big kind of like. There were there was all there was like a kind of misfit group who were kind of like people who were into kind of like indie music and dressed as goth and I wasn't one of like I didn't right. feel like I was one of them so I wasn't really anything I was sort of like I liked playing bridge that was one of the things I really liked when I was about seventeen which is like that's not a thing um, <laughs> I mean there's not anything so you I didn't to, really you have to have a partner to do bridge right yeah to... yeah so we I mean I'd had other people who who there were some other people in our school that used to play it but I think um, I was a bit more obsessive about it than some people. <laughs> Um, I was. I don't really feel like. Maybe everyone feels like. Oh, well, I wasn't really in one of those groups because I, uh, maybe no one feels like they were in one of those groups. I didn't really. I was quite. I was quite swatty. I guess. But I went to quite a kind of like this kind of very standard comprehensive school. I don't think there was the standard to be counted as someone quite swatty was not very high. Right, yeah. So I was. I was sort of like that. I was. I was. I didn't. I didn't like doing sports. I didn't really like PE. I liked to stay at home. I lived in the countryside. I lived in the middle of nowhere. So there's a lot of. I was. I was on my own quite a lot and in my room quite a lot, just doing my own kind of things. And so kind of like writing and making up stories and doing stuff like that on my own was like a big part of growing up and I didn't feel like that I didn't, but I didn't feel bad about that I didn't no. want to be anywhere else really yeah I mean I lived in the countryside for a little bit when I was growing up and then we moved to the city and I much preferred it in the countryside having adventures or making stories up like either physically doing them or, or imagining them that was great uh, it's more isolating I think in cities when you are isolated because mm. it's kind of like I don't know it's a different vibe so what 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 part of the countryside did you live in? I lived in the Midlands it's the kind of part of the oh, countryside right. no one really knows where it is it's sort of like North Leicestershire like there's no, there's nothing, right. <laughs> nothing at all. It's sort of a bit near Leicester. It's a bit near Nottingham. It's near right, okay. Loughborough, which is Loughborough is one of those places that most people have heard of, and no one really knows where it is. So it's sort of there. And um, I, mean, I, I live in Brighton now. I live in the city now, and I wouldn't ever want to live in the countryside again. I think I sort of had enough countryside. Right. But I think I'm, I mean, I'm quite a sort of dreamy kind of child, kind of daydreamy. And 
I suppose that's why I do what I do now. It's the same kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, it's, it's odd because people talk now about, like, you know, being into kind of, like, science fiction-y stuff as being kind of, like, feeling stigmatised because of it. But I've ne- I never felt that. And I was really, really into that stuff. And well, I never felt that once. It's definitely, like... It- there is no stigma around it particularly now like mm. in culture now like that's like the mainstream like yeah. geek, geek culture has become pretty mainstream now I think like everybody likes Doctor Who now everybody yeah. likes Game of Thrones all that sort of thing and like I know that if that sort of stuff had been coming out when I was at school that everybody wouldn't yeah. have liked it yeah. but I mean I don't I, most of my stigmatising in my life has not been really to do with me reading fantasy or science fiction books that was the escape I, like nobody was bothered I could have been reading any books it was the books that were the problem, not the uh, not the genre. Um, and even then, there was a lot of other things that it was really about, rather than even being a SWAT. I think um, the way I've been I've been treated. But I don't, yeah, I don't have like I don't feel like I, those are SWATy things. It's taken me a lot, or, or nerdy or geeky things. It took, took me a while to even like accept. Like people who kept on saying, like as an adult, people have said, "Oh, you're into geeky stuff," or "You're like a nerd," yeah. or a SWAT, or, or whatever. And I, I sort of like. At first, I wanted to say no and just keep on saying no. I'm not. That's ridiculous. But uh, I just—it just gets too exhausting after a while. And I just go, yeah, all right. You know, that, yeah. That's a way you can. That's a way for you to analyze where I am in the world. It's not particularly a lie. What you're thinking I'm into is kind of accurate. So yeah, all right. I'm that. But yeah. <laughs> what was the job that you were doing when you were when you were basically doing stand-up? I mean, what was what's your um, other other part of your life? Oh been? well, yes. Yeah. So I worked in sort of marketing for arts organisations, which I still do occasionally. I was working for Carousel, who are like an arts and disability charity, and I worked there for about five years. And I stopped working there when my son was born, so that was my second child was born. Then I was just at home for a while, but sort of working part-time. And now my children are 12 and 10, so now I'm mainly freelance and just do those kinds of things. But occasionally I'll do copywriting and things like that as well. Having your children, that, it sounds like that gave a kind of break. You were like going towards being a, a stand-up and then a, a being a stand-up, and then that changed things for you, as well as your, sounds like your, your employment as well was sort of changed by, and altered by that. And people often, these days, everyone holds back, you know, doesn't have kids for, not everyone, that's again an, a, a vast generalisation, but pe- the, the narrative we're sold is you're supposed to wait for a long time mm. until you built your career and then have your children. It doesn't sound like that, that was exactly the narrative you went through. Yeah, I mean, if anyone said to me what is the best way of doing it, I would always say to her, like, if you want to have kids, have them as early as possible, (laughs) and then so get it out of the way, and then you know, and then like they'll, you know, if you had your kids at like 22, like they'd be like starting secondary school, you know, be 33, you could start there. I thought that that to me that would be if I was doing it again, I'd say yeah, that's probably the best way of doing it. But I had children in my early 30s. Um, In fact, I was 30 when my daughter was born, and 32 when my son was born. And I don't know. I mean, I don't. It's sort of hard to think of. There's any kind of plan to it. It was just sort of, I think it was genuinely like I was working somewhere where I could get maternity leave. Like that was as simple as that. Like it was the first time I'd been working somewhere where I wasn't on a contract that meant I couldn't get paid maternity leave. So I was like, where's someone would get paid maternity leave? And I thought, well, I might be best doing this now while this is in place. Right. <laughs> that is what I can remember as being the main thing that made me decide to do that because before that I'd been working on charity campaigns on fixed term contracts, which meant that that kind of thing wasn't, wasn't applicable. So that that sort of made sense I don't know I mean it's hard to say I mean this is an odd it's odd to talk about my children now because we're at the end of the fringe and this is this month this I've been away from them since the 1st of August right Jesus. and this is the longest time I've ever been away from them right. since they were born and in previous years they've always come up for a visit and this year I decided to not to not do that you know I thought they're old enough and I should be able to 
<laughs> but the way I've been coping is that really just try not to think about them. Right. Which is easy. I find it easy just to not think. Like, I try not to think about home. Like, I try not to think about all the things that are at home that I miss. The, the minutes I think about them, I start feeling really guilty about the fact that I've not been thinking about them because my strategy is to not think about them. That's a pretty good strategy. Yeah. And there's no, no reason to feel guilty about that strategy. That's a very intelligent strategy. And I don't know. They are old enough to. I think you know, if you're a mother, you sort of feel like not thinking about your children is somehow something to feel bad about. Although, I mean, they're, they're perfectly fine. I should say. Yeah, they're perfectly fine. Absolutely. They're with their dad, that they have a great time with. And um, I think they're probably having an amazing amazing time and they you know they they could call me or skype me if they wanted to and they haven't so i imagine that they're having too much fun without me yeah i mean well i suspect that kind of guilt which i can totally understand Mm. you feeling is is another one of those things we're pressured by society to feel yeah i think it's kind of healthy for kids to spend time away from their parents as well as with their parents as well like if you don't have those kind of experiences and they are with one of their parents so they are still have they still have very good parenting happening yeah in fact they said to me they said mummy i will miss you but we've still got daddy so but i but i'm gonna miss the dog more because we don't have another dog <laughs> and so obviously like they'd be very pleased for me getting back I get back very very late on the first so I'll see them on the morning of the second and the dog is coming home that day too so cool. we'll have to see what is the most exciting thing whether it's seeing me or whether when um, the dog gets home from dog boarding yeah I mean what and what's it like making a show like how to be fat when you've got a family like because I, I it's hard making a show like what I've made but I don't have a family so I'm just I, um, I, it's a weird one uh, What's it like? I mean, they haven't. They, my children haven't seen the show. Although I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind them seeing them. Um, my nephew's seen it. And he really enjoyed it. He's fifteen. Yeah, I mean, they they know. It's really interesting, like how kind of like socially aware they are through like not, me not doing. I don't think I should take the credit for it. I mean, they just they just seem to be this way. They have opinions about like bodies and, and fat bodies, and they are aware of like prejudices that they see around them or like other things people say in the playground or just all kinds of prejudices. I mean, my, my daughter came home from school one day and she'd been on the school bus and she'd seen a boy, a much older boy than her, call another boy like a, like a homophobic slur. Right. And um, she recognised this word as a, as, a, as, a, as a bad word. And she turned around on the bus and she was 12 and this boy was probably like 14, quite a lot bigger than her. And she turned on the bus and she just went, well, that wasn't very nice. <laughs> like kind of like in this kind of like, oh my, wow. like really kind of like, and I think he's, he's apologised, which I was really proud of her for doing. But I did also, um, I think they just, they, so they do seem like really aware of stuff like that and really kind of like switched on to kind of like, well, you know, that's, that's not okay. That kind of behaviour is not okay. I don't know, and also the kind of the media that they consume is so different. I mean, my daughter really likes this show, Steven Universe, which she's really, right. ha- has really kind of like introduced her to all kinds of like really cool concepts and like queer relationships that they have within the show. And I think she's kind of, she's kind of 12 now and she's just sort of starting to think about these kind of things. She just, she just seems to be like so, so in tune with like, the opportunities. And also she, she's online. She does a lot of drawings, she does a lot of arts. She's on this website DeviantArt where she's met a lot of people right. online she's got a lot okay. of online friends so she's got friends who like identify as like bisexual or asexual and things like that or genderqueer and and she's like fully aware of what that is and because you can't if you can't at a young enough age why would it even feel like even slightly Absolutely, unusual yeah I mean again it's a, it's the yeah. tremendous opportunities people like to talk about the terrible things about the internet and there are terrible things mm. but the that we, we don't really talk about these amazing opportunities enough and like how it can fundamentally change what we're exposed to can really help us to be more you know more welcoming more more human to each other uh, and that's great but I mean like when you're making a show though you do a lot of like you have to run the show on yeah. your own in a room or whatever like when you like learn the lines learn the lines. kids aren't um, as 
as respectful of uh, when you're having to work or whatever I yeah. imagine I mean my dad I remember when we were growing up had a, had a sign on the door that said you know you can't enter if he was mm. writing and if he'd turn it round and you know if he wasn't writing and you were allowed to go in as long as you bowed three times and all of that so I mean I guess that's that sign suggests to mm. me that I wasn't very respectful of his writing and working time well I mean the thing is I have quite a lot of advantages kids go to school so School's, during the day yeah, they're, they're in school <laughs> so I have that also my children's father and I are not we don't live together so half the time they are with him so half the time they're not in the house so that that makes things easier but I do find they're actually really quite self-sufficient my <laughs> children they do both really enjoy uh like um yeah my daughter's really into draw really like very seriously into drawing and art and making animation so she likes to do that almost all the time she's awake she likes to spend uh, drawing or making animation so she does that in her room a lot of the time and my son uh, really likes video games and he really enjoys playing video games so if I do need to work they are really in fact what I've said in the past and I think it's true is if I want to actually spend time with my children and have them speak to me we have to go out of the house and do something because if we're in the house they both have their kind of things that they like to be doing and they go off and do them it's hard to even get my children to like sit down and watch a film with me because they've got other stuff they'd rather be doing in the house and you know the house the, being at home for children now is so entertaining compared yeah. to when when I was a child there wasn't that much to do and as I said I lived in the countryside and was sort of up in my room like kind of like writing stories and things like that but we've got so much to do like yeah. being at home is so much more fun now yeah that's true I mean and, well that, that's it's good that you've got that and actually I mean they're, they're right they're the right age for you to be doing this mm. kind of stuff you know when they're when they're really young I mean I used to work with the under fives and that would be a completely different story I mean I yeah. guess you were doing that when you were writing some of the stuff yeah on. when I was writing I, they were really small when I was writing for black lace and that was quite tough I think there was when I was writing the werewolf books and I really I really had to do like a work I had to do about 3,000 words a day to like get through the amount that I had agreed stupidly to write then they were they've been preschool preschool I think or maybe just Coco might have just started school my daughter might have just started school I bet you they'll be five and three so that was difficult then it was a matter of like they sleep um, so when they're asleep you can do things um, so my son would sleep in the day so when my son would, would be napping in the day I think he maybe went to preschool like a couple of mornings a week then it was a lot it was a lot but I was younger then I could work in the evenings like I right. can't do that now when my kids were small because I was young because I was like in my I'm in my 40s now when I was in my 30s I could do I could do like four hours work in the evening I couldn't do that now I yeah. just I'm too like my brain is like sludge in the evening so I could sit down at 7.30 and work till 11.30 yeah. and, 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 and I had to I had deadlines I had to meet I think now I would just find it impossible I wouldn't get any decent work done It's been a real pleasure getting better acquainted with you I have to say the last question that I ask everybody is do you have anything to plug? Um, that's a good question because by the time this goes out my Edinburgh show be will be finished <laughs> so I'm just going to have to say to people if you google my name I have a website I have a tweet follow me on Twitter or, or look at any of those things I'm sure there will be something by the time this comes out, comes out but at the moment I don't know unless I suppose there's Slash Night on the 17th of September is that, no, that's, yeah um, is that, it might come out before that so if you're listening to this before September the 17th 2015 you can come to Slash Night at the Marlborough Theatre in Brighton um, and if it's later than that, then uh, yeah, I don't know at this point what, what the next thing's going to be. And what's your Twitter handle? Oh, it's um, Matildia, so M-A-T-H-I-L-D-I-A. Um, and uh, you can find me there. And uh, yeah, I'm sure, th I'm sure there'll be a lot of things, but um, 
I can't remember. Right. I can't remember not living in Edinburgh. Now. No, this is I this is this is reality. It feels like this is this is forever. Yeah, like, that's, so. People don't know that about like you don't do the do the fringe like for, for, for performers during this uh, these three weeks. This becomes everything that we can kind of imagine yeah. both in the future and in the past. It just feels like this so is weird. forever. And I know you go back and it's like the day after you left. Like you go back home and it's yeah. like it's like you know um you know in the line that it's in a wardrobe where they go through the wardrobe and they come out. They've yes. been in there years and they come out and it's like hours later right. that is what it's like when you go home That's really and you walk right. in your front door and it's like oh yeah there's like that washing up that I left a month ago right. and it's just like oh I'm, yeah it's I'm, still there it's not a long time yeah. but it feels like forever and on that note the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience okay well thanks for listening everyone and, and goodbye bye everyone the next stand-up tragedy is happening on Friday the 16th of October at the Hackney Attic. It's a night of tragic autumn, the fourth of our seasonal tragedies. It's our last show of 2015. Tickets are available from the Hackney Attic website already. £5 in advance, £7 on the door. You can find out more about stand-up tragedy and everything stand-up tragedy related at www.standuptragedy.co.uk. UK. There's plenty of podcasts out there, tragedy spanning back over years and years that you can listen to if you're desperate to hear some amazing performers do some amazing stuff, which you kind of should be desperate to hear. Matilda Gregory's been on it a couple of times, so have a listen back to her episodes particularly. My fringe flu is beginning to get better, so I can speak a little bit better, but the next bit of audio was recorded last week, and so you can hear what my fringe flu sounded like then. Also, my solo show, What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity is not over, it's just the run in Edinburgh has finished. I am going to be developing it, doing it in other places. You can find more about the show and you can find the survey of a thousand anonymous men's thoughts on masculinity, patriarchy, what it is to be a man over at www.manspainingmasculinity.co.uk. And if you enjoy this show and you think that those other projects are really good too, please consider donating. You can donate at solo shows website you can donate at the stand-up tragedy website i do a lot of stuff and i release it for free it'd be great if i could make more money from the stuff that i make for you guys and for myself rather than the stuff that i make for other people because then i'll be able to do it better and i'll be able to focus on it more so please if you can if you like this show and you want to support me making free stuff for people please consider donating 